Hi, I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir. We're in Washington. I'm here with Joe Yonan, the food and dining editor for The Washington Post. Joe, we're so glad you're here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, and Faith Mitchell, who I've gotten to know because we share membership on the board of an organization called Community Wealth Partners. But Faith is the CEO and president, I think, of Grantmakers in Health. And we're really glad you're with us, Faith. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, and of course, my sister, Debbie Shore, co-founder of Share Our Strength. Thanks for being here, Debbie. Yeah, so happy to be here with everybody. I've got a lot of things I want to talk to you guys about, but one is I think of Joe as having like what may be the best job <laughs> anywhere, <laughs> and I'm sure you've heard that before, but it just seems like being a food and dining editor at the Washington Post has to be a great job. How do you get a job like that? Like, where did this start for you? Oh, wow. Yeah. No, I mean, I love my job. I think when people say that they think that it sounds like the best job in the world, they might have a different idea of what it entails and what it actually entails. Um, people sometimes say to me, um, what's it like going to all those restaurants all the time on your employer's dime? And I always say, you know, I'm not the restaurant critic, exactly. I'm his boss, um, which is really fun. Um, but um, to answer your question, I was at the Boston Globe as a food writer. Um, I had been travel editor there and had been working toward food there uh, for a while um, after I sort of realized that I was tired of news and wanted uh, to move in another direction and sort of realized that food was my favorite topic. So somebody didn't just say to you, Joe, you're covering food. You like, you had a desire and oh, ambition. That was like where you yeah, were headed. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And started, when, like when did that start? Like how young <clears> were well, you? Well, I was... Um, it was 1999 when I I didn't get a job that I was going for at the Globe. I didn't get a promotion that I was going for, and that was new for me. I was used to always getting what was the job? What I wanted. It was a New England editor um, of the Boston Globe, and when I didn't get it, I was relieved, and that surprised me. And I thought, wait a minute, I should be. I'm supposed to be devastated that I didn't get this job, what's going on? And so I realized that I wanted a change, that I wasn't happy in news. Um, and, you know, it's funny, I got that What Color Is Your Parachute book. Mm -hmm. I remember that. Yeah. Remember that book? Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, there were all these exercises in there about how to find your bliss. Um, and I was ready to try one. Um, it was this visualization exercise, and you were supposed to, you know, do all these uh, answer all these questions in order to work up to it. And then you're supposed to sit in a quiet spot and, uh, you know, close your eyes and like imagine yourself working and happy at the same time. Like who could imagine? You're supposed to imagine these two things, this whole series of further visualizations where you ended up trying to figure out what it was that you were doing in this visualization that uh, made you happy. So um, I got all ready and everything. I'm a little pen, I'm a little paper and I sat down and I closed my eyes and it was about five seconds. I opened my eyes and said, oh, it's food. It's food. Wow. Food is the okay. subject that I've always been the most interested in. I've always cooked. Um, the writing that I had done up until that point um, had sometimes included restaurant stories, interviews with chefs, and those were, I realized those were all my favorites. Those were the ones that I wanted to talk to people about. So I decided to go to culinary school. Um, I kept my night job, as it were. I was working on the night copy desk at the Boston Globe at the time. Um, and I went to culinary school during the day for a, a year. Um, I did this. So I had some really long days where I had to be at class at... Where'd you go? I went to Cambridge School of Culinary Arts mm -hmm. in uh, Porter Square, Cambridge. Mm -hmm. um, and I would be there from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. And then I would rush over to the Globe and work from 4.30 to 12.30. It's a young person's um, day, yeah, that's for sure. I did that uh, a few my times goodness. a week. Um, and my colleagues got really used to my bringing in leftovers and really, really liked it. But, um, but then I just started trying to work my way toward food journalism as much as possible. I never really thought that I was going to leave journalism to become a chef. I always knew that culinary school for me was about turning my journalism career toward food. And then I just tried to write about food as much as I could in my spare time. And then I tried to get the globe to put me in food as a position, which entailed a couple of years of making myself indispensable, doing other things, and then threatening to leave. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and finally they did, yeah. Um, and speaking of writing, you've got a great book called America the Great Cookbook. Yeah. Uh, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But, okay, great. Uh, congratulations on Thank that. You. I know it's relatively new. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, 
and faith. Um, are you a foodie? I know you're Hi. about health, and health is connected to food, but are you also a foodie? I think so. I, yes. I, I was a foodie before that term existed. Yes. I, was, I was raised a foodie. I wanted to say I haven't. I've used what colors your par- parachute also. Oh, I haven't yeah. thought about that book in years. Yeah, it was great, and I used it also to make it, a career change. Oh, really, it was very very helpful. So, at what point was that for you? When I was trying to figure out if I wanted to stay an academic or move into philanthropy. Yep, and. Thanks to what color is your parachute, I decided to make the leap and go into philanthropy. It had some wonderful exercises that helped you figure out what you really yeah. wanted to do. Wow. See, Debbie and I have both worked at the same place for 34 years, so obviously we didn't read the book. <laughs> we probably should. I bet, I bet some of our colleagues wish we'd maybe, read the book. Maybe if we did, we'd find a new something. Yeah. It's, never, you, it's never too late, you right? You knew the color of your parachute. Yeah. We did. We did. Yeah. We did. That's true. So uh, in academics, where were you, Faith? So I started out life an anthropologist, although anthropology is... A medical anthropologist or... Yes. Well, first, first, um, cultural anthropologist as an undergraduate uh, at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And then um, I read an article in a paper back when there were papers, right, (laughs) about a woman who worked at a hospital in Miami who was an anthropologist and who was helping the hospital kind of adjust to patients from different cultural backgrounds, which was a problem 40 years ago and, a, and is a problem mm-hmm. today. I mean, I just finished reading an article about um, West African patients in Germany who don't speak German and don't speak mm-hmm. English, mm-hmm. and you know they're having to bring in translators and so forth. But reading that article got me interested in that notion of combining kind of health and medicine with the tools that an anthropologist has. And I ended up uh, applying to the medical anthropology program at UC Berkeley, which I think was the first one in the country. And that's where I went. And the interesting thing was they said they were training us to be like a new kind of anthropologist, like one who wasn't an academic. But but because they were all academics, they just trained us to be academics, which was good because it was like intellectually rigorous, but wasn't, um, you know, we kind of had to make up the other skills that we would need to operate outside academia. But I, so, but well, I, I was going to ask you, this, <laughs> it's such a basic question you're talking yeah. about being the new kind of anthropologist. Yeah. What, what's the best way to describe what the old kind of anthropologist oh, did? Well, you know, okay. I, I mean, I feel like I, I think I know what yes. anthropology is, but I'm not really sure. Well, it and it has different there's different types of anthropology that's which is not exactly answering your question but it's basically the study of man i mean that's anthro you know and anthropology so you have like the archaeologists who study you know uh historical cultures you have the physical anthropologists who study evolution and then the cultural anthropologists who study how people live what what how they define meaning and value which is what attracted me the idea of of the sort of relativism of how we live here and wanting to know how do other people live, which relates totally to food. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, but how do people live? How do they construe meaning in the universe? You know, how do mm. they relate to each other? So that was my entry point. And then, so now you can see when when they were saying, we're going to give you, we're, we're going to create some anthropologists who can do this in a practical way, there are actually lots of practical applications, but I think the folks my age who were in the program had to kind of create that. It wasn't as though it was given to us. And so that was part of starting out as a as an academic anthropologist, although I was at a medical center, UC Medical Center, but, but realizing this isn't quite what I'm looking for. And so I heard about this foundation position I read, what color is your parachute? <laughs> I thought about it, and I thought I'm going to go for this position and and see what it's like. Because it seems like what foundations do is closer to the ground mm-hmm. than what academics do, and that I might be happier doing it. And so I made the leap. and um, You've been in philanthropy ever since. More or less ever since, although I did spend... Uh, a long period at the National Academy of Sciences, which is closer to the academic world than philanthropy. But then when I had a chance to come back into philanthropy with grant makers in health, I was um, I leapt at it because I, I was eager to get back into that world. Uh, and tell us 
what does Grantmakers in Health do? So it, it's kind of a, an association of yes. Grantmakers. You got it. Yes. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> it's a professional association for health foundations and corporate giving programs, and our role is to inform and advise them. We work with hundreds of them around the country, um, just um, trying to help them do their jobs better, much like Community Wealth Partners does. There's quite a bit of sort of alignment with CWP. And we should explain the Community Wealth Partners is a subsidiary of Share Our Strength that consults to other nonprofits on how to be more strategic and high-performing. And I think many health foundations have benefited from Community Wealth Partners' um, kind of interventions or consultations. And and our ultimate aspiration is to help health philanthropy generally, not just the foundations that support us, but we work most closely with those where we have a a financial tie. Well, I would imagine that uh, your background, though, as an anthropologist you know, whether it's conscious or not, must really inform the way you think about the work, right? There must be, I guess I'm wondering what are the, some of those key learnings mm-hmm. and practices mm-hmm. that you brought with you to this very different career? I find the anthropology is in everything. Mm. It's because because it is about people, ultimately. It, uh, it helps me be a better manager because you're relating to people in terms of thinking about values and meaning, as I said, and it helps with the work we do at Grantmakers in Health because, uh, again, you're you're looking at the goals. Especially health found, health foundations are generally trying to make their communities better. They're working with communities. They're working on um, you know health problems in their communities. And having worked with communities myself as both an anthropologist and a grant maker gives me an idea of the tools and skills that I think grant makers can use you have an insight to you work have, with you those have a, communities. You're bringing a, a totally different perspective that they probably just don't have if you hadn't studied human behavior, and that's yeah, great. It's interesting. And Joe, I feel like there's, a, uh, there's an, at least an element of health that kind of creeps into your writing. Oh, You've sure. got a column mm-hmm. called Weeknight Vegetarian. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you've got a book called Eat Your Vegetables. That's right. So, yes, I mean, I you've a, and so, I mean, how conscious was that for you in terms of like trying to intersect food and health? Well, um, it started personally, really. I um, found myself eating less and less meat, um, and it sort of surprised me, actually. I wasn't, uh, it was kind of like what happened with the with the job at the Globe. You know, sometimes things happen and you have reactions and it surprises you about yourself, you know, and it makes you realize things about yourself. But um, I was hosting a dinner party one day, and I went into my, I was trying to plan what to make, and I looked in my freezer, and there was all of this meat, this beautiful meat that I was buying from the farmer's markets, and that I wasn't cooking at home. Um, and I and I realized when I went to um, cook for the dinner party, I was like, wow, I think I'm realizing that I only cook meat for other people now. <laughs> I've gotten to the point where I'm not cooking meat for myself. What's, you know, what's happening? Um, and, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that I, from a health perspective, really is where it started for me. I just um, felt better the less and less meat um, I ate and um, just sort of kept going down that path. Um, and of course, simultaneously, I was being exposed to much better and better vegetarian options in restaurants and um, and that kind of thing. Certainly, environmental um, thinking came into it and and certainly feelings about animals um, came into it. I was a little shy to admit that, I think, for a while, but um, but I can admit that now. Um, but yeah, so the, the health aspects of, of uh, eating a predominantly, if not solely, plant-based diet, um, those, those motivations were there from the outset. And then I had been writing a column um, about cooking for one, um, aimed at single cooks, um, for a few years that I had really enjoyed. I was single at the time. Um, and then, you know, I started, not only did I realize that, you know, I wasn't eating meat and wanted to write about that, but I also, you know, got into a great relationship. So, um, I was no longer cooking for one and I wasn't really cooking meat. So, uh, I'm the editor of the section. I kind of can write whatever I want. (laughs) So, uh, so I transitioned it to, and we didn't have a dedicated, uh, plant-based um, outlet um, in the food section. So um, I thought, 
that it would be interesting. So to, what to what that. type of cuisine? I mean, given that it's plant based, but is there a certain genre? I don't know if genre even fits with food, but you know. Is it, do do Mexican or French or Italian it's or everything? It's everything. Yeah, it's everything. eclectic. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's uh, it comes from my palate of being a former longtime meat eater. I'm not just a former meat eater. I'm a certified. Well, no longer. I'm sure they've. I'm sure it's expired now. But I'm a former certified <laughs> Kansas City Barbecue Society judge. <laughs> I mean, I grew up in Texas, and um, I've I've uh, I've eaten a lot of meat. You're like, Sorry. are you zero tolerance? Mart eat, meat eater. What's that? Your card carrying meat eater. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I think they revoked my card, but, <clears throat> yeah. but do you you like won't eat meat now, or you just if you want to, you will, or is it just you know every now and then I'll taste something if somebody tells me that something, particularly in a restaurant, um, that it's so creative and so interesting and so unlike mm-hmm. you know anything you might have had. There's something about it that I feel like I want to experience. I will sometimes. You know, it's funny when I when I um, have spoken about eat your vegetables or about vegetarian cooking um, at events or book signings, I often um, experience this phenomenon afterwards where at least one person every time will come up to me um, afterwards and they'll get really close and they'll lower their voice and they'll whisper, you know, I, I, I want to be a vegetarian, but I'm afraid that every now and then I'm going to want to have a steak. And I say, I lower my voice and I say, here's what you do. Eat it. Be eat a, a vegetarian. Steak. Be a vegetarian. And every now and then, have a steak. <laughs> have a steak. So basic. Have a steak. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. You know, I think people think you have to yeah. abide by. Well, it, it must matter, really though. It, it matters if you're doing it for health reasons or political right. reasons. If it's political, right. zero tolerance. That's right. If it's That's for right. health reasons, you know, every once in a while you can have a hamburger or a steak. Right. Uh, now, tell us about the America the Great cookbook, your newest. Oh, thank you. Oh, it was such a and, great and project to work you, on. You never considered the title Make America Great Cookbook, <laughs> I hope. No, we liked having the little hint of that slogan in there. <laughs> um, so this is part of a, uh, a series that a publisher in New Zealand first did um, in New Zealand and then in Great Britain and Australia and South Africa, um, where they pick a charity in, in each country and they invite um, chefs and other food figures from around the country to contribute recipes. And here what we did, we partnered with um, Weldon Owen and we asked a hundred what we call food heroes um, around the country for a recipe for something they make for people they love. And um, a portion of the proceeds benefits No Kid Hungry. Um, and because of that No Kid Hungry connection, I was interested in working um, on the book. When they asked me about it, that was what uh, drew me in. I really love the work that No Kid Hungry does and wanted to support it. And then in turn, I have to say it was really amazing. We invited a number of chefs based on what the um, series producers had experienced in other countries. And we had such, we had a much higher rate of acceptance and willingness to participate than they had had before oh. <laughs> in other places. And I think it was because of the reputation oh, of so No Kid Hungry. Oh, well, thank you for that. Um, yeah. that's it great. was really, it was really wonderful. So, you know, we have everybody from Dan Barber and Ruth Reichel. You have a stellar list. It's an incredible group. Yeah, yeah it's amazing. Yeah, Marcus Samuelson. Everybody. And, yeah. Is there anybody you couldn't get that you tried? Um, Probably not. There were a few people that were tough. Um, that came close, but um, for whatever reason, mm-hmm. you know, you know, the problem really was PR people of famous people. That was much right. more difficult than, than when we were dealing <laughs> right. directly with, yeah. uh, you yes. know, I sure. know a lot of these uh, chefs, which was great. So I could just yeah. sort of email them and text them personally and um, get yeses. But when they were surrounded by the, it's, the they had their, it's always the handlers. The handlers. Yes. handlers. That 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 got to be got to be tough. But you know, the thing I think I'm proudest of about the book is just the sheer diversity of the group of people in the book. You know, it's it's just all walks of life. It's all colors, ages. There's uh, chefs. There's oyster farmers. There's uh, lemon growers, there's just writers, there's a, a lot of different yeah. people in the book. So. Now, do you test the recipes that that went in, or did you um, test them? I did not personally test um, the recipes that went into this book. There was a team. Um, mm-hmm. Thankfully, thankfully, we had a team. We had a team of uh, a videographer and, 
editor, creative director, Tim, and an amazing photographer, Lottie Headley. And they went around mm-hmm. and shot 100 people in 100 days That's around the country. And shot the food, which and is like a special food. art in terms of how you yes. photograph food. Shot the food on location, did these, be- shoot these beautiful um, portraits of everyone, these incredible environmental portraits of everyone. Um, and and there was a team of copy editors that um, edited the recipes and tested the recipes. Okay. So, so if you want to see those photos, America. America, the great, the great cookbook. Sounds yeah. beautiful. Um, Faith, I want to get a little bit deeper into your work because w- w- the more I've learned about what you do, the more I've realized that you're not only leading this effort with um, grant makers who focus on health, but also uh, focusing on diversity, um, equity, health equity. Um, I think one of your initial roles, I read you you had a portfolio dealing with health disparities. Um, what should we know about uh, how those issues intersect with our health care? We should know that it's tough work. <laughs> so the equity piece is something that grant makers in health has played a leading role in, as you said, and I was doing work on the topic before I even went to grant makers in health when I was at the Institute of Medicine. Um, the and the interest in what we now call equity really started probably in the mid eighties. Uh, so if you go back in time for a minute, there was a big health and human services study that showed that there were these major differences in at, at that time they just looked at black and white differences in the diseases that people had and how long people lived and infant mortality and so forth and kind of the first efforts in mid-80s to try to do something about it. We have not made a whole lot of progress, which is one of the reasons why there's so much interest now in what we're now calling equity versus disparities. And you can think about how disparities, that term describes the problem. Disparity is like a difference. Equity describes the goal. So it's a more positive way of talking about it. It's like Mm -hmm. bringing people to equal health outcomes. And it's it's like a many-pronged effort at this point. So you have people in healthcare settings like clinics and hospitals that are trying to equalize outcomes so that you don't have these big differences in how people are treated when they go to a clinic or hospital or differences in outcomes because somebody doesn't speak English versus somebody does and so forth. So you have things going on in healthcare settings. You have um, efforts that are going on in communities in terms of just the information that's available to people when they're making health decisions. And and now in the last, seems like, say, five years or so, you have um, more and more of that sort of inward look um, where organizations are looking within and saying, what about our board? You know, what about the mm-hmm. staff? What about the janitorial service that we hired, you know, and saying mm-hmm. we really want to see equity kind of reflected at every, every level in the, the work that we do. But it's tough work, as you know, from the conversation we had at Community Wealth Partners a few weeks ago, right. because um, when you're talking about race and ethnicity in this country, it's like a minefield. Yes. And... And some people don't even want to admit it's a minefield. (laughs) You know, they just want to say, you know, I don't see color or whatever. Mm -hmm. And yet we know that the history of the country is reflected in every aspect of things that happen every day. And so we I I find from where I sit at Grant Makers in Health that um, I've been hearing stories. The good stories are that organizations are taking this work on. But then you also hear the stories about how it was much tougher than they expected. But we, but and the encouragement we give is, stay in there and just keep working at it. And actually, to loop it back to Community Wealth Partners, there are organizations that can help you do the work, like yep. Community Wealth Partners, so that you aren't just kind of struggling on your own with it. Let me ask you about something I read mm-hmm. 10 days ago, and I don't know if uh, anybody else has mm-hmm. read it. I'm guessing that you had faith. It was the New York Times cover story uh, of the magazine two Sundays ago about the differences in uh, maternal and child yeah. health. 
uh, between African-American women and their children and non-African-American women. And what was, I mean, I thought it was so provocative, mm-hmm. and I don't even know what I think about it yet or, or, mm-hmm. or how well I understand it. But the point was that uh, there are much higher uh, mortality st- statistics, both for African, African-American moms and their babies, and that they were not related necessarily to income level or education, uh, but that they were related to, so in other words, um, you know, a, a, a well-educated and a high-income African-American mom would still have this higher rate of health and mortality issues. Um, but the author uh, had uh, cited some studies that, that said it was related to uh, the, in effect, toxic, toxic stress, the long-term mm-hmm. effects of discri- discrimination mm-hmm. and stress and uh, what somebody described as weathering uh, on a woman's body, just, you know, the, the body physically being worn out from these stress factors. How, how did you interpret that? That was news for me, and I just haven't been able to stop mm-hmm. thinking about it. And it sounds well, like you read it too, Joe. Right, yeah, right. yeah, it was fascinating. Well, I was familiar with the statistics, and it's in an area where I would say we've made so little progress. In fact, I saw a follow-up, I think it was a tweet actually, where someone was saying the difference in maternal mortality was actually less like 100 years ago between black and white women right, right, than it is right. today. Amazing. So just to underscore the fact that it's not going in the right direction, there's been a lot of research in the last 10 or 20 years on stress, you know, and, and what it does to people's bodies. And in fact, in the cab on the way over here, I was thinking about, you know, the latest incident, which was the group of black women who were golfing. I don't know if you've seen that. They were golfing, this. and I think it was yesterday, yes, right? Yes, that was terrible. And some white golfers thought they were going too slowly, so they called the police on the women. And and, and you think, yes, accumulated stress does crazy things to people. Right. Like, why do you have to call the police? Because you think another group of golfers is moving too slowly. Um, and, you know, you think about Starbucks. And for the white and, golfers, it might have been the first time they've done that. But for the African-American and the black golfers, that might have been like an example of something that right. happens quite frequently or in their lives. Or just that feeling of, again, right. you know, right. again, mm-hmm. you get the message, you don't belong, there's something wrong with you. And, and yes, so the research shows it takes a toll. And then I added, as you were talking, I was thinking about quality of care comes into the picture also. And, and then... Um, kind of um, how people are treated in medical environments, even though that article didn't talk about that. Yeah. Um, so you've got several factors. Well, or that how issues that they raise are responded to, yes. that type of thing, yes. right? Yes, because right. remember the one woman, right. she was talking to her doctor about things she was feeling, and he was just kind of dismissing it. Right. Um, and, and so there's plenty of evidence that that happens. I was really glad they ran the article because there are many Americans who not only don't know about disparities, but in general think that we have, you know, the best medical care in the world yes. because that's what we've been told. And in fact, among developed countries, we're near the bottom, mm. you know, compared Is to the right? Euro- yeah, compared to the Europeans. That's just been consistent. But one of the reasons we're near the bottom is that we have like big differences um, in things like mortality and morbidity. Once you you know get past the surface and sort of look at the details of the American population. And then the other thing is that we pay more, and in general, you know, we don't live longer, but we pay, like, way more than the Europeans do. You know, getting back to the stress, it reminds me, I think it's a little different because he's talking about kids, but Paul Tuff's book on how to have a healthy child, is that's not the title, but that's the... It's like how kids succeed. How kids succeed. succeed. And he said more than anything, more than money, more than hunger, more than poverty, stress. Obviously, you're going to be stressed in any right. of those situations, right. but stress very specifically, what it does to a child over the long term is the most damaging and the hardest thing to turn around. And Erwin Redliner talks about the same thing. Um, Dr. Redliner, who I'm sure you're familiar yeah, with in Children's New York, Health Fund, Children's Health Fund yes. talks about the the impact of stress. And it's you know stress is invisible, mm-hmm. as many, m- many things are, but as a social determinant. Yes. Uh, I'm thinking that it and it's you just really don't hear that much about you know, how that impacts people's people's lives. But over the long term, you know, the the compounding of it, right, has got to be, and then obviously there's a, you know, there's a moment where people just... And it's lifelong. That's the mm-hmm. thing. I think there used to be a notion that, you know, 
whether it was kids will sort of get over stressful childhoods or even uh, adults will get over stressful incidents. You know, you can see from like what's happened with vets or what's happened with women who've been raped or molested, much less kids who've been in stressful environments. With new scientific tools, they're realizing it's actually like changing genetic expression mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that there's there's a lasting damage that mm-hmm. can be and, done. And I would imagine there's a different treatment around a, a traumatic experience versus daily compounding or weekly or monthly stress. Right. That somebody has faith. I'm curious mm-hmm. if you mm-hmm. if you think that part of the issue in those healthcare situations, mm-hmm. because I was thinking about this when I was reading that piece too, is that the professionals, the doctors, the nurses, they're not necessarily reflecting the diversity of the population who's coming in, and so they just don't understand that kind of daily stress on a personal level. I, I'm thinking about this book I read a long time ago that I thought was really amazing called How Doctors Think by Jerome Groupman. Do you know him? He's know a him. Mm-hmm. really wonderful writer on um, medical care. He's a doctor. And the book is basically about all the ways that doctors kind of process information that comes into them from their patients and all the ways in which they m- kind of misdiagnose people because they make assumptions or because patients don't say could it be something else? Or because, you know, the doc- all these biases kind of come in, like the doctor has seen, you know, 10 uh, homeless people in a row that um, are trying to get pain medication because they're addicted to painkillers. And then the 11th one comes in and actually is having, you know, a heart attack that they just assume that the person mm-hmm. must just be trying to get pain medication again, you know, things like that. But I was wondering about it in, in, the, in terms of a hospital setting and just doctors not um, not understanding what it feels like for these women who suffer these stresses day in and day out, and whether that just affects like the guy who was brushing off the um, the patient in the story. Mm-hmm. It's just because he. I think that's absolutely the case. Yeah. That and they're kind of not seeing people as people. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's what you're saying. You're yeah. kind of generalizing from the last ten patients that you saw or what you think people's lives are about or or from a list of symptoms or something. judgments right. that you yeah. might bring right. to the situation about their behavior I think that's that's definitely the case and and efforts to get doctors or medical providers to be more reflective are their efforts are out there but I think you know there's a lot of work that could be done mm-hmm. in that respect uh, for sure and it feels like we're just at the beginning of understanding these stress mm-hmm. factors the way we do. I mean, I thought that New York Times article was kind of mm-hmm. groundbreaking, at least for a lay audience, you know, mm-hmm. for a, you know, um, and I guess we've, you know, we've got a, quite a journey ahead of us on this. And and I think one thing that, say, an article like the New York Times article helps with is that these are not acceptable differences. Mm-hmm. There's right. something mm-hmm. that we can do about them, and we don't just blame the patient for mm-hmm. it, but we say there are, there are, these gaps are the result of of um, kind of unacceptable yep. conditions that are remediable yeah. and, and don't just have to be written off. Well, I'm, gra- I'm glad you raised that because one of the other parts of the article was that, you know, for a long time we've assumed that if women were not having healthy babies, there were things that the women were doing that were wrong, you know, and that they weren't taking care of themselves or properly. And that pointed out that that may not be the case at all. It may be these other factors. Uh, Joe, I'm really curious from the point of view of somebody who has the um, the platform of the Washington Post. One of the things that we have found at, on this podcast on Ad Passion and Stir, and I say we've probably talked to close to 80 or 90 chefs and restaurateurs and people in the food world, is that there's, uh, in addition to really wanting to cook well, there is a secret desire to change the world. I mean, uh, that is, uh-huh. a, you know, we've, we've just run smack into this intersection of chefs and food and social justice. I mean, and, right. and it manifests itself in lots of different ways. Some, sometimes, sometimes it's hunger, sometimes it's the environment, sometimes other things. How do you think about your role as an editor? Is that something, how much of a motivation is that for you? I've noticed that in some of the articles that you've written, I've noticed uh, at a minimum this kind of celebration of diversity and this right. this effort to really be more inclusive and to celebrate that. Yeah. But how, how much of that is conscious on your part? Uh, a, fair, a fair amount, a good amount. Um, I would say in my own work, I'm more and more and more 
conscious and aware of a need for more diverse perspectives to be showing up in my in the pages if that's an old-fashioned way of putting it but um, in the stories Um, and I think you know as journalists our job we have many jobs at a basic level our job is to certainly um, reflect the society stories that we see in society that we think are important um, to you know, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable mm-hmm. um, is an old, uh, an old saying. Um, you know, but to make sure that we are telling the stories of people who are doing interesting work. Now, I'm a, I'm a journalist. I'm not a, I'm not an activist, so I can't sit here and tell you that I necessarily have a. Um, you know, a political agenda that I'm trying to get across with my food coverage. But there are some basic things that I think um, we I can be comfortable saying that we, quote unquote, editorialize on. Um, and one of them certainly is about the value of cooking at home. Um, one you of know, the healthiest things you can do, right? Right. One of the healthiest things you can do. It doesn't seem like that needs to be political, but, but it is political. We certainly... I certainly believe that people, yeah, they eat healthier food if they make it themselves. They, um, it's better for the, certainly better for the planet to eat fewer processed foods. Um, and, and so that's certainly, that's certainly a big part of it. But we're also always looking for ways to showcase the work of people who are doing who are doing good work. You've got some I, ideas I for Joe. In. No, because I'm, the reason I'm <laughs> smiling at Joe is because he read my mind. Because um, I was thinking, I have to put in a plug for cooking at home. Yeah. And because to me, that's that, especially these days, mm-hmm. that feels very revolutionary. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like changing the world. I'm an, I, you, asked, you started out, Billy, asking me if I was a foodie, and I didn't really fully answer the question. So I'll do it now. Um, but my grandfather was a chef. And oh, great. my Where? Um, in Pennsylvania, he was West Indian, but he had moved to Pennsylvania to go to college, and then he stayed there. In uh, what part? Uh, yeah. Chester County, okay, outside Philadelphia. Outside Philly, yeah. And um, so he was a chef and a caterer. And my mother, so my mother grew up eating good food, and it was like a religion. And and we ate family meals and. The, the food was delicious, and she was serving like endive and things like that in the fifties and sixties when when mm-hmm. the, it wasn't the norm. Iceberg mm-hmm. lettuce mm-hmm. was out there, so I really had the good fortune of knowing about good food from a young age. And then when I had my daughter, I thought I I have to keep this going. Mm-hmm. You know, the the cooking, oh. the eating mm-hmm. together, and everything that goes with it. You know, the values, and I I know you all four of us share about <laughs> what food means in people's lives. It's so important. And it's so disturbing to me that people don't cook. So few people yeah. cook now. And so at work, I'm I'm the evangelist for, you know, like, you know, put down that store-bought food and, and cook oh, something, so, you know? So glad to hear that. <laughs> the one-woman army. <laughs> um, and... And at GIH, in terms of the sort of organizational values, just to add that on, so besides the personal mission, we do pay attention to what we serve, like at our conferences mm-hmm. uh, and things, as we stop serving soda, and, oh, you know, we, we're sensitive to the vegans and the mm-hmm. gluten-free, and but we also try to have just good-tasting mm-hmm. food. And then we actually do a lot of food-related programming also, because foundations are very active, as you know, in the yep. sort of food arena, and so we're... Our role is to spread the word about, you know, farm to table or the way they are converting school kitchens and yes. and all, things you'd be very familiar with that are trying to improve the, the food that people are eating. But to me, I mean, food is, is so much of, of the value of life. And so yeah. I, that's that you're so fortunate that you get to write about it in all its different dimensions. I do. I do love it. No, you're right. It's the, it's the great connector, right? The, you know, the, the great connector. The trend now, I'm just thinking about, um, you know, all the places that are delivering food, 
not just mm -hmm. from restaurants, but also the like meal kits. The, all the meal mm -hmm. kits. So I think, you know, the cooking at home is not, I don't think it's on the rise, unfortunately. Right, right. I um, mean, there's there's some bright spots. Like we are we are seeing some evidence. I don't have any stats on me. I should have brought some, but we I have heard some evidence that um, Generation Y? Wait, uh, who's after millennials? Yeah, next well, one? I know. Where are we next? Oh, man. Are What's we coming at, next? Are we at Z? Z. We're at Z. We're at Z. X is over. Y is over. We're at Z. Does that Generation mean it's the apocalypse is next? What comes after <laughs> Back Z? to A. We have to go back to A. <laughs> back to A. Double A. Um, Generation Z is appears to be more interested in cooking than millennials. So that's interesting. You know, at the Post, we started a new site called Voraciously. It's a, a new vertical, mm -hmm. a new line of uh, coverage that's aimed at millennials. It's aimed at people that we think have uh, a lot of exposure to a lot of different kinds of food around the world because mm -hmm. of their travels, because of restaurants that they go to, but they're intimidated and they don't, they're afraid to kind of dive in at home and they mm -hmm. need more handholding. Um, and we're we're really happy with the way that's going. We're seeing really good uh, audience numbers and um, we're really excited about that. Um, but I do think that the even younger ones, I, I think we should keep an eye on them because I'm hearing anecdotally that there are a lot of younger kids like high school now kids who are more interested in cooking um so that would be that would be great um, that would be great yeah yeah we you know we have a program called cooking matters which right. you know focuses on you know teaching training shopping budgeting in the low-income community for people who want to written about no, you yeah thank you uh, <laughs> but you know among that population which is a small slice that we work with um just tremendous interest in knowing how to cook mm -hmm. healthy tasty foods mm -hmm. for their family. So we see a lot of that, but there's there's certainly a gap in knowing how to do it, knowing how to shop right. for everybody, really. Not every, you know, people are yes. kind of intimidated mm -hmm. by mm -hmm. it. You know, and the the meal I'm glad you brought up the meal kits a minute ago. The meal kits um, are so fascinating because a lot of well the companies themselves and some I think some advocates of them say that they can help people get more comfortable with cooking sort of in the same way that you hear people talk about a lot of the smart kitchen stuff that's out there. You know, we've written a lot about the um, high tech in the kitchen and, you know, there are uh, burners that you can communicate with your phone and with right. apps and they tell you when to turn the salmon and all this stuff. Hmm. And, uh, and I think that those, that meal kits and that smart kitchens, that they don't teach you how to cook. Um, so I don't really see them as a bridge the way mm. some people do, but some people see them as a bridge that anything that gets you to do something in the kitchen is better than nothing, which right. I will agree with that. Um, but I'm, I still think that long term, I don't see how just, you know, cooking from the meal kit all the time is going to, then you're just going to feel like the training wheels are off and you're going to start cooking. I think <laughs> right. it doesn't. Billy, who, who, who was the guest we just had on who was talking, who was, you know, traveled to Thailand and has the hamburger place? What's his Lucky Bob. Alex, Alex McCoy. So Lucky Bob. Alex, yes. he was a guest and he was, he was so entertaining. Yeah, I don't great. know if you know, he's a great guy. I do, yeah, he's great. And he was talking about, um, you know, all these kitchen, you know, things that you, and he said, you only need two things. You need your hands and your head. Your That's hands. it. Hands. I'm so yeah, he said glad you he don't said need equipment. He said it's not about what equipment head. you have; it's so about your hands. Glad he said that. Right? It's yeah, so he's great. Guy. He's great. And it's the, a it's a good hamburger. The thing I find I've used the meal kits because I would just wanted to try it, yeah, see what it was me like. Me too. I've used them. Yeah. And I I could see their point because they do get you at home, and mm -hmm. the ads always show a group of people enjoying the food together, mm -hmm. which is better than eating by yourself or mm -hmm. something like that. But they don't. There's no creativity in it. Whereas right. I find the pleasure for me in cooking yeah. is is even though I will complain about cooking every day, but at the same time, it's like meditation, me kind too. of. You know, it's yeah. you're there with these uh, raw ingredients, it's trying to figure out what am I going to do tonight. You know, yeah. and how am I going to make it interesting? I love I love the whole process, going yes. through all the books and magazines, and I love shopping for it. Yeah. Then I love setting the table. I cannot get my daughter to do one thing in the kitchen. Oh, but I'll, really? I'll tell you, and everyone talks about, oh yes, you know, little Susie loves to bake cookies with her mom. My, my daughter has never <laughs> wanted to lift a finger. But you know what? She loves when I cook, and she loves when right. I have people over, and she loves to bring her friends. You know, she gets that. That's you a special feeling for her, but maybe she'll get there one day. I was because... just going to say, it, it could sink in. I've talked to a lot of people who whose parents didn't set out to teach them to cook or didn't necessarily mm -hmm. 
right. really involve them mm-hmm. in the kitchen purposefully, but that but at a certain point they started trying to cook and a lot of the stuff yeah. uh, really did. I'm really holding on hope, in. but I know she appreciates it. And that so I feel success around that. You know what so. my favorite thing is in the kitchen? It's it's thinking that I don't have enough to make a meal, but then yes. looking harder. Yes. You like I'm this thing? Yes. 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 And I like I like thinking I like looking around and looking at my pantry and, and figuring out what and to do anyway. The, and you have the fake panic for a minute. Yes. Oh, no, I can't do right, it. And right. then you pull it off right. and you're really right. excited. But yes. that's not for company, is it? Is that just for when uh, you're home? Or no, I haven't. Yeah. I, haven't the, I know what you company. mean. Right. Yes. right. For company, it's like, I, and I always right. forget one ingredient. But Our new, role, our new role at our um, dinner table, because Debbie and I have kids close to the same age, is uh, my wife, who usually makes dinner, she's a much better cook than I am. Well, you know, spend better cook than you are. I don't, have hour. you ever even boiled uh, water? <laughs> no, you're not a cook things. at all. Not don't one. out him. Bread. Don't out him I here. Puts potato chips bread. and sandwiches. <laughs> I bake bread. Hey, you know, <laughs> you, you do potato bake chips bread. and cream cheese is not a. Uh, you bake bread. I bake bread. I'm well, a that's big. The, the, the New York the Times. Gym, the Jim Leahy. Yeah. Uh, no need bread. It's good bread. It's delicious. I'm sorry, brother. But in our family, so my wife will, you know, however long it takes her to cook dinner, usually she's at it for like an hour or more. Uh, and our son, who's 13, will eat it in like three minutes. Right. So we have a rule now. He sets his iPhone. He's 20 minutes. He has to be at the table at least, no matter what time he's finished eating. And it's agony for him. But it's like we're going to talk. We're going to talk about yes. the day. We're yes. going to talk about work. We're going to talk about the news. Right. You can't just and you can't get you up. Know, bolt your food yes. and get up. You can't can, get you, up. can you tell my fiance about that? And yeah. I need him to uh, <laughs> turn off his phone for 20 minutes. You got it. Yeah. And sit. So. Um, Okay, so we this conversation has gone really fast, um, and we're running out of time. But I want to ask you both. Well, pretty close. Yeah, we've been talking for almost like fifty we minutes. Just started. Didn't uh, seem isn't that like crazy? it. Yeah. But um, but for you, Joe, and you, Faith, Faith you're both uh, in different respects, kind of leaders of your uh, institutions, or both have leadership roles uh, as an editor mm-hmm. at the Washington Post, as the CEO of Grantmakers in Health. Um, just tell us a little bit about where you're trying to take things next. What's your What's your goal for um, your portfolio at The Post, Joe? Oh, that's such a... That's a hard question, I know. That's a hard question to throw at me right at the or, end. Or what, is, or what is, I guess, what is it that you want, <laughs> your, you're hoping your readers take from the, the work that you oversee? You know, I want to continue on this uh, crusade to get people to cook. Um, I, I want more diverse voices in my in my section i've said this um before i've been talking about this for a while and it's and it's been helping i've been getting a lot more uh pitches from writers of all sorts of backgrounds but that's that's very important to me is to make sure that um that same diversity that i went for with america the great cookbook i want that Mm -hmm. to show up um Mm -hmm. in the food coverage of the washington post day in and day out for people to be able to expect it there yeah yeah Yeah. and for those for 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 people of all sorts of backgrounds to read um the stories that we do and to see themselves in those stories i don't think you can see i don't i i would like to have a collection of pieces um any one of which would speak directly to a certain person more so than having everything speak to everybody Mm -hmm. right like i like um, I like really interesting pieces like that, but that—that's those are two of my main goals those are good going ones. forward. Those are those are big ones. Yeah. Um, and Faith, I, so I have mm-hmm. Joe a hard question. I'll ask you a harder one. Uh, <laughs> for 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 folks who are listening, and we mm-hmm. I feel like we barely scratched the surface mm-hmm. on these issues of equity and disparity mm-hmm. and 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 race issues, which, as you said, are are always hard to talk about. Um, what do people? need to know more about those issues and for somebody who's listening to you and inspired and says you know I didn't realize that these issues were as profound in our in our health system or across our society what can the average person do what can somebody who's listening to add passion and stir do to kind of advance some of the objectives that that you've talked about so the question I ask myself and that I periodically ask audiences that I think individuals can apply to themselves as well is, what kind of future do you want for this country? When I ask that question, I'm thinking especially about things that relate to kids. Like, do you want kids to be healthy? Don't we all want kids to be healthy? Don't you want kids to be educated? Why would you leave some kids out? And, 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 and prefer others, because how is that going to help us? We need people who can pay into Social Security. You know, We need people who can buy houses, who can continue to build the country. 
And so that's how I kind of think about that inclusive vision. And I think individuals can reflect those kinds of goals in the decisions that they make at an individual level. So you have a chance to raise your taxes by a dollar to support schools or something. Um, look at what's happening in the states that have not supported schools. Like, right. And you think about, so where are those kids going to be in a few years? Is that the kind of country we want with like, half-educated kids? That doesn't seem very good to me. So it's it, often those kinds of things come down to day-to-day decisions that we can make. The other thing that I think about that is kind of on a different plane is is showing love. I mean, to me, mm. again, when I looked at your questions and thought about what can people do from one day to the next that helps make a better world, it's how you treat other people. So much comes down to just the decisions you make about how you're going to treat every person that you run across in the course yep. of your day and whether you're bringing love to that interaction mm-hmm. or whether you're bringing anger or hostility or stress or something like that. And that actually takes me back to food and mm-hmm. food writing because that's one of the things I, I'm one of those people who reads recipes. I bet mm-hmm. you do too. Yeah. Just read, read, read recipes. <laughs> I and, don't follow them, but right. I read them. But just imagining, <laughs> and there's always so much love and joy. To mm-hmm. me, food writers and people that work in food, you get to work with so much sort of joy. It's one of the highest things that humans do, cooking and eating and things tasting good. And sharing food. And sharing food, absolutely. Well, and and that's wow. that's a big yeah. part of life. Those well, are so ones. important. Those, those are really good ones. Uh, Debbie and wow. I had uh, one of our uh, aunts, our Aunt Audrey used to, mm-hmm. Only watch the uh, the Food Network and, and the cooking channels. Mm-hmm. And she was in her 80s, and she hadn't cooked for 25 years. And I said, Aunt oh. Audrey, I said, why do you always mm-hmm. watch the the Food Network? And she mm-hmm. said, there's always a happy ending, which oh. is which is kind of true, you know, when you think oh, about it. That's so great. Um, and I, and I particularly uh, appreciate what you just said, Faith. I was just last night I was reading an old commencement address by the writer Kurt Vonnegut, um, and the last thing he said to the students, he says. It all comes down to one thing, my babies. He said, just be kind to each other. Oh, which is really, that's a right? famous, be kind. famous right, address. Right, yeah. right. Um, thank you both so much for being with us. Faith Mitchell, CEO of Grantmakers and Health, board colleague at Community Wealth Partners. Love listening to you. Joe's ahead of us all in writing books. He's been cranking them out, but I think you should, I think you should write yes, one too. Yes, Are you yes, thinking yes. about it maybe? Yeah, yeah, I do. So, I like to do a lot of writing on yeah, the side. I, yeah. I think you should. And Joe Yonan from the Washington Post and author of the new book, America, the Great Cookbook. I um, can't wait to see it. Thanks so much oh, for being nice. with us. Yeah, that was thank fun. you. And Debbie fun. Shore. Thank you. Uh, really and Billy fun. Shore. I'm going to show some love today. Me thank too. you, Faith. You know what? That you was good. think about that all the time. I am. I'm that, doesn't, that doesn't come up enough no, on this doesn't. podcast or thank anywhere else. Thank you for else. that. I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.